0: and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This is episode number 11. We keep moving forward, and Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. What's going on, man?
1: Not a whole lot. A lot of editing and a lot of computer crashing as usual. Man, it sounds Onwards like... Onwards and upwards, as we say. Sounds like your life is very <laughs> hectic right now.
0: What is the deal? Did you? You said you lost a raid? Is that what's going on?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm still using crappy uh, built-in software raids into computers, and uh, it's just no love to be had there. Uh, It's just probably the third or fourth time it's failed on me in the past two months, and I've had to rebuild it. Of course, as always, I've got backups. I make sure everything I've got is backed up, but i really got to get a proper uh, raid controller for trying to edit off
0: of these raids. Have you considered maybe one of the external boxes, maybe like uh, the Drobo we've talked about or some of those other ones?
1: The the speed's not there. Like we talked about, even with USB three, you're going to saturate that after you raid up some SATA's, and uh, um, unless you're doing Thunderbolt, which a lot of Windows motherboards don't have Thunderbolt yet. So, one of the things I've actually moved to because my network attached storage
0: isn't exactly super speedy, I can almost edit off of it. I keep a one terabyte SSD in my editing bay, and then I move my projects on and off of the server as I work on them. One terabyte is usually enough to handle most size projects. In fact, I was just working on a 19-minute short, and it was 128 gigs. So really, it's overkill. 500 would probably do the trick. And then you have direct yeah. access to the speed. I
1: don't know, man. Maybe better than a RAID. No, no, true. But um, for me, it's, not, it's more the speed is why I RAID, not so much the storage, because the storage is cheap. I mean, even you know the one terabytes that we've been looking at are still coming down in price and are still looking very attractive.
0: Yeah, I saw one terabyte, uh, not SSD, spinning drives down to like $35 on sale last week. That's oh, yeah. That's ridiculous for storage. So if you don't have enough space, there's no reason why you don't go out and buy something. <laughs> Plus, now they're up to, what, six gig or six terabyte hard drives. So massive I amounts so, of yeah. storage available. Those are 180, or $180, $190, so they're still pretty spendy. But uh, the five terabyte ones are down to like 160 and the four are down to like 130 140 So... Man, hard drive prices are really cheap. Now, on that note, let's go ahead and move on to the news. Wait a minute. Wrong cue. Dang it. Messed that one up. Time for the news. First up on the news list, I've got the JVC-GY-LS 300 4K camera. This is the super 35mm camera that we talked about about three or four episodes ago and it has gotten a price drop. This thing hasn't even been put out on the market yet, and they've already cut it about $500 down to $3,995. This, of course, is to compete with the price drop on the Canon C100, which has dropped down to $3,999 as a supplementary to the new Canon C100 Mark II. This is a 4K camera. It offers up a super 35mm sensor, so you're looking at the same sort of sensor size as the C100. It's a 13.4 megapixel sensor, or 0.5 actually, and it's doing this weird thing. The adapter for this is actually a Micro Four Thirds adapter mount on the body, and it punches in on the sensor in order to accomplish Micro Four Thirds, uh, Super 16, even supports C-mount lenses, and then it goes... Full up to your um, basically your m or super thirty five millimeter sensor size. What is the deal with this? Have you, have you been looking at this more because now it's sort of attractive to me. I, I kind of want one.
1: It it is an attractive price, and I tell you, as a a running gun, um, I could see this really being very useful for people who are doing reality show work or something like that. Where. Uh, You want a small camera, you want that portability, but you want that flexibility to adjust the camera to whatever kind of situation you're in. And uh, as you've had experience with uh, C100s and C300s, they aren't always um, super friendly to multicam. I think this is – JVC, though, I probably doesn't want to do a price cut because, after all, it's not even out yet. They don't even know how this is going to do in the market. And out of all the names that people list, JVC is not on that list of 4K upcoming, you know, video type stuff. So uh, I'm liking the video quality. I think the video quality is really good. And it's interesting with the sensor, the way that they just build in to dynamically adjust between different kind of lenses. Um, That definitely makes it super flexible for whatever you have lying around. And I think that's what JVC needs in order to start getting popular in the marketplace is that, hey – We've got all of these uh, different options you can use with your camera.
0: Now I'm scrolling through the page here to take a look at kind of some of the specs. And it looks like what they're gonna do for the sensor and adapter itself is they're going to have four screw mounts that you take off in order to adjust this for a PL mount. Uh, They'll have a Canon mount as well as a few others to choose from. So that's really sexy. Also, they're doing some cool stuff with uh, the wireless access to this. Uh, they've built in Ustream so that you can actually send out your broadcast to other devices while you're filming. That's really sexy for $4,000. Man, I want this camera. I, I want this. This is, I'm going <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, maybe I'm going to buy this. I, oh, geez, I can't. It looks got, like a
1: really fun toy. Yeah. Right I, before you buy.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'll probably have to rent one of these at least. The uh, 4K Kodak is um, 150 megs compared to the 100 megs on the GH4, so you're getting a little bit uh, more data out of it. It's got dual-card recording. It records in both MOV format as well as AVCHD, so you can basically put out whatever format you want for your recording. It's got a built-in uh, ND filter. i got to stop talking about this camera because I really... <laughs> Really want this? You're to click buy right now. I know. I'm like hovering oh. over the buy link. It's man, and yep, that I, doesn't exist. I know. <laughs> I know. JVC is not a brand that ornaments. I like really love or anything like that. But th- they seem to be offering a lot of stuff, and it, I don't know why they're the only ones doing this right now. There aren't a whole lot of uh, other cameras in this market that that have a 4K option with the Micro Four Thirds and all these other lens supports. Ah, uh, man. Oh, okay. (laughs) Let's get that on my system. Not going to buy a new camera right now. (laughs) On to the next thing. Uh, This is another disappointment. We were talking about SSDs at the beginning of the show. And now the Samsung 840 Evo is back in the news. Uh, Seems that it is slowing down again. And Samsung put out an actual press release. Uh, Basically, it states, in October, Samsung released a tool to address a slowdown in the 840 Evo. Sequential read speed reported by a small number and... (laughs) You notice they throw in that small number there to like try and downplay how bad of a deal this is. Uh, Their new tool was effective at immediately returning the drive's performance to normal levels. Uh, We understand that some users are again experiencing the slowdown. Uh, While we continue to look into the issue, Samsung will release an update to the version of Samsung SSD Magic software in March that will include a performance restoration tool. I think what they're doing here is they're going to have us basically rewrite our data to the drive every so often. Does that sound like
1: what you're reading? <laughs> that, that, sounds, that sounds like what their, uh, their tool may be doing. Because uh, after all, the, um, uh, them updating the performance tool, it sounds like they haven't fixed the problem. It sounds like it's more than just a firmware update, the fact that you need a tool to fix it, and not so much just update the firmware, and then the product works like it's supposed to. So I think it's still a whole lot of disappointment and them as well saying a small number of users after not using their drive. They make it sound like, too, that part of this issue is just, oh, if it's your main drive, it's not an issue. But truth be told, if you don't use data sectors, then it's an issue correct? That's yeah. what you've experienced?
0: Yeah, it's a slow so as if you store stuff for a long time, basically, and by a long time, I mean, three to five months, it starts really slowing down when you're reading that data back. So if you have a project and you just leave it on the SSD, and then you go do something else, it's going to start to kind of chug along pretty slowly. It's also bad if you're using it as a boot drive, because not all of the files refresh when you're booting and shutting down your machine. So those files that are kind of stagnant for a while, they start to actually slow down your boot time. I had one of my laptops before I refreshed the uh, SSD in there. It was taking – it went from – I mean, it's not slow by any means. It was 13 seconds boot time when it was at full speed, and it dropped down to like 28 or 30 seconds, which is still – That's that's over double – that's that's a less than 50 percent. <laughs> but I mean, if you think about like five years ago or six years ago, what oh, boot yeah. times were like a minute and a half or two minutes, you know, you could we're go like get a cup of coffee about. and now I'm like bitching because this is uh, 30 seconds to boot. Uh, but it is still it's slow. And you you spend a, a very significant amount of money on SSDs. You want them to perform properly. And if they're not going to do that or there's going to be weird issues, then you got to kind of avoid them and go with something else. One of the other things is that this SSD is one of the first ones to try that uh, triple-level NAND. So that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of these, like, they're kind of experimenting. And I don't know, maybe they've fixed it with their next round of of drives. I don't think the 840 Evo will ever be 100% from all these different problems that have been popping up. You're going to have to either refresh it every once in a while or do something else. But on Mm -hmm. the bright side... They'll be on sale very shortly on Amazon because people are not going to want them as much.
1: Yeah. So maybe you could find some, I don't know. I the, the whole point of SSD is speed, so you can't even say, like, cheap, you know, storage for something. So Now, on a
0: more expensive note here, this is from a Kickstarter, <laughs> and uh, you brought this to my attention. I'd kind of seen it floating around a little bit, but uh, I hadn't really looked into it too hard until Devin brought this up, but the people from defocus follow focus system, if you're familiar with that, uh, they got together with Zhang optics Inc on a project to design a set of cinema mini prime lenses for micro four thirds cameras. They're doing an entire set. If you got in on the Kickstarter, I believe the entire set was like $2,600. Um, now it was a can, good deal. Yeah. It was a really decent price and they have a 16 millimeter, uh, a 12-millimeter, a 25-millimeter, a 35-millimeter, a 50. And I don't think the 85 was in the Kickstarter, but uh, they now also no. have an 85 listed. Now, these are all sitting at about $1,000 to 899 depending on the lens you choose, and they're all T2.2. So that's a pretty good price for cinema glass, especially with an mm-hmm. entire set of primes. You got an even better deal if you got involved in the Kickstarter
1: did you get involved in this Kickstarter, Devin? <laughs> no, a little too rich for my blood, as most of the uh, cine lenses are. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious to think what uh, what is the ideal, um, I guess, suitor for uh, a kit like this, because it's not that wide. I mean, they have a 12, they have a 16, both of oh, the whole range is at T2.2, along with your 25 and your 35, which seems to kind of follow the line of 35 millimeter lenses i mean 12 is kind of really wide for a 35 i guess but um you know and most of the time i kind of thought this would be great for black magic stuff uh it's still not totally wide but i think for cinema glass that's small and super portable and i think that's probably what i like about it is even though the price is a bit big because let's face it for i think the same price you could get um, something close to a Rokinon Cine set, and then you throw on an extra 600 for a MetaBones adapter or something like that, and you're achieving faster glass, you know, and more flexibility depending on if you run multiple cameras. I think I like they, the size yeah, of them. Yeah, I think the size is where this wins, and I'm
0: looking at it right now here. Uh, th- these things are fairly petite compared to the Rokinon yes. lenses, and your 35 millimeter and your, um, your 16 millimeter. Uh, these are going to be tiny compared to even the 50 millimeter or the 24 millimeter from Rokinon. So that's, I guess where you're winning here is that you get something small and petite. And then I'm looking back up here at that JVC camera again. That's what I was thinking. And that's like a match made in heaven. You could put a set of rails (laughs) on there, add these glass or add
1: this glass, and then you're good to go. That's, that's pretty nice. Start shooting movies. Well, and it's, it's that small size, right? Because, um, the more that people are doing guerrilla filmmaking on location kind of stuff and the more that it's a one-man shop and you got to carry all of your gear with you because uh, good camera people are hard to find and a lot of the times we're asked to go to crazy places uh, because they can't find someone local that can do the job as well. So uh, being able, you think about how you could pack all of this into a relatively uh, small bag along with your small camera, whether it's going to be a GH or your Black Magic Pocket um, or even just the Blackmagic Cinema camera, uh, y- it really reduces the size of your set and the weight that you have to carry. I'm thinking too, not that it happens that often, but when you go to remote locations to shoot, when you have to hike you know, for five hours to get to a location, stuff like this can make all the difference, but still give you all the options of big fancy you know, cinema set.
0: Well, and the other thing too is that um, these are all full manual control with a gear built in. A lot of the micro four thirds lenses that are available, especially the ones that are used for photography are missing that sort of manual control. Even the Olympus, focus which yeah, wire. most of them are focused by wire. The Olympus does a good job. Um, they have the click system where you actually engage the the lens and then you can actually uh, ch- uh, focus that way and it has hard stops and everything. So that's at least something, but a lot of actually most of the Panasonic glass, it's just free spinning fly by wire stuff. So, you know, if you're trying to pull focus with it, you're, You're basically kind of sort of just winging it. There's no real way to put, like, end stops or anything like that on there. The other thing that I want to point out, though, is this was from a Kickstarter project. And while this Kickstarter project got 500% funding, which means a lot of people got excited about it, it also is still a Kickstarter, which means that these guys, even though they're two companies that have kind of done a few things before – they're going to be struggling to meet the demand for the number of lenses that are, are going to be shipping out. And we're just in the middle of Chinese New Year right now, and the company that's going to be manufacturing their optics is in China. So they say June for a release date, but I don't know. I've been on Kickstarter before, so, no. and even when they say, like, even if everything just goes really smooth, they're usually at least yeah. a month or two late. And in the case of some of the stuff, and I'm looking at the swivel right now, which is across the studio, that's the follow um, motion device that Mm -hmm. you basically put something in your pocket, it follows around. That was a year and a half late. A year and a half. And that's awful. So. If you got in on the Kickstarter, hopefully you get your stuff. Hopefully this isn't vaporware. And hopefully if you do get your stuff, it's not so far in the future that, you know, you basically just were out twenty six hundred dollars or what have you, you know, for that, that long. That's
1: part of it. That's a lot of money for a Kickstarter, uh, all things considered too, because frankly Kickstarter slogan should be we'll ship next year. <laughs> like... Exactly. It's so disappointing. And <laughs> you, you, you're right. Well, I think it's just – some people who are inexperienced at what it takes to bring products to market, and then uh, they get very aggressive with how they uh, think that everything will play out. And then when they realize that it is extremely difficult to make a product and get it to market, there's lots of delay. So like you said, even when it goes smoothly, it's still late. Well, and one of the things – Look at the price of of of
0: their 12 millimeter T2.2 yeah twelve hundred uh, yeah twelve hundred dollars, but in the Kickstarter, they had any lens off of their list for like six ninety nine so mm-hmm. uh, they may be taking a loss or getting really close to the edge of their margins with uh, some of these lenses if those are the ones that people pick out. And, I mean, if I only bought one from them or I, you know, had the option to buy one, I would definitely yeah. have gone with a wide because that's where all your money usually is in lenses. Wide lenses are just more expensive for whatever reason. Absolutely. And, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, they have pre-orders up. So, if you're interested, uh looks like adding this all up, you're probably uh, minus the 85. I don't know how many people would be l- the lusting the after some. that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how many people are going to want an 85, but the the rest of the kit together, you're looking about five grand for the entire cinema kit. And they do have them on pre-order. So if you really want to get in on it, uh, you can swing over to their website. uh, That's V E Y D R A and check that out. I've also got links to that in the show notes, as well as links to the Kickstarter. Uh, The oh, he's typing something in right
1: now, lunchbox. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you kickstart the lunchbox? You talked about, kickstarting something else
0: uh no I i've
1: kickstarted
0: seven or eight projects and then i got burned by three of them and Ooh. i no longer support kickstarters in general once you have a product okay. you can bring it to me and i will definitely <laughs> get in on it but until you have your said product um no thank you the swivel was one that that's a yeah. really the original one is really cool it's like a device that you can set your camera on and it'll spin it around they created a new one that has a remote that the remote has a um, basically a lav mic built in so you can uh, run that back to the camera wirelessly. And the remote also has a tracker so that it motion tracks you across the room with your camera. And that's a really cool idea, but when they were building it, they first of all, they limited the weight. So originally they were expected mm. to be able to handle a full-size DSLR with a full-size lens. Well, it turns out that's not the case. There was weight limitations because they used plastic gears and some other things. Uh, they changed uh. the, a couple of the internal controls, so it's still a bit sloppy following you around. And then on top of that, it took man, a year and a half, I think, before they actually delivered it after their deadline. And their deadline was already, you know, six or eight months out um, in front of when the Kickstarter ended. So, and those guys already had a product before. They had a swivel in the past and this one was an upgraded version. So that was really crappy. Then there was this thing, um, the very first device that attached to a DSLR to beam your video back to your camera. And I don't remember the name of it. It was like the Cam Ranger or something like that. But uh, that guy got into a fight with this manufacturer. And basically, the only thing he had actually done is he had written the, the software for the phone, the app, and then the control interface software. And the company was building everything else. So when he got in a fight with them and told them to piss off, they took over the device and it kind of like lost all support and everything. And they, they've done a really good job. It's the same company that makes those really tiny cables. Um, they're Mm -hmm. escaping me right now. But the thing is, is like that was such a fiasco and then it took so long and there was all these issues that didn't work the way they thought it was going to work and everything else. And I, you know, that's only two of them. You know, I've kickstarted seven projects and they've, um, I mean, I've only had one that's gone smooth. And that was a guy who made this jar that had like a sealing plug for it. And you could seal all your food inside and then pull it out again. And it was like 20 bucks. And I use it for my coffee. I got that almost immediately. It was only, I think, two months late. So, you know, in Kickstarter world, that's like basically on time. And then uh, he even sent me a machined aluminum scoop to scoop my coffee with. So, <laughs> You know, that's a good experience. The rest of them, not so much. Uh, I wait till the product's out, man. Or, you know, OUYA, that's another one. Now you can buy those on eBay for like $20, $30. And, you know, everybody got in on that, and they're not that popular. Uh-oh, I totally lost Devin here.
1: No, no, I'm here. What are you talking about? <laughs> Where'd you go, man?
0: It's- uh oh, you're freezing. Oh oh, oh no! <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. On that note, there we go. All right, he's back. We're back. We're back. Sorry what were you running that. for, man? Did you cable get to providers. your providers? Ah, uh, I right. was. I was gonna go grab a four G modem and try to get back online. <laughs> well, I'm using
0: uh, <laughs> a cable as well, so I guess I don't have any room to talk. I pay for business class though, so that's kind of nice rolling on down the line to more adapter devices. I've got this little guy right here and I've actually got this with me. This is a cold shoe adapter from small rig. Uh, they make a few different flavors of this. This is about seven or $8. And the nice thing about it is that it's got a hole right in the middle and you can run a quarter 20 screw right into your rig. So if you have a rig, for example, this monster right here, this is, um, I believe the Eagle Talon or the Talon cage. Um, Uh, you know, whatever. It's from Lattice. This is a heavy duty cage and you have all these quarter 20 holes, but how do you actually attach your stuff? Well, most of your accessories are going to have cold shoe plates that you can slide on like your Rode video mic and your Zoom H4n has the little screw in plate on the back. So you use something like that and you can actually add those cold shoes to your rig. This is not a rig I normally use for carrying around. Obviously it's heavy it's made out of a lot of aluminum and it's bulky but when I just need to attach a bunch of crap to a tripod and film like you know multiple recorders uh screens stuff like that this is kind of the thing I use and these little adapter devices are nice and cheap so if you're in the market for some kind of cold shoe adapter for your rig you should definitely check out these small rig adapters they're small they're cute and they're only seven dollars They're exactly what you need to get your rig set up for filming in any basic project. Devin, do you use a rig?
1: Yeah, actually, I do. Um, I'm actually renting out my shoulder rig uh, this week to another filmmaker in the area. Um, And these are fantastic. I've been buying the plastic ones and busting the crap out of them for a couple of weeks, and it's totally worth it to just spend the extra $2 and buy an all-metal version so that You know your gear is safe now. Which one was the plastic one? I I have a thumb screw version, but
0: those are kind of hit or miss. You can't find them on eBay or Amazon very often because they sell out really fast. What are you using?
1: There were some on eBay. There was there. I bought like I think a ten pack for like five dollars. They they're just plastic uh, shoe mounts that you get from you know China or whatever, and the screws metal, but. it screws into plastic. So your hot shoe mount is just metal on top of plastic at the core. And so it's pretty easy to bust off, uh, especially if you're running around and doing a whole lot with your gear.
0: Now, somebody else pointed out when I was talking about these on the site that they do also sell one that has a quarter 20 hole on both sides so that you have two mounting places instead of one. If you have this on a rig and you're worried about it twisting off or unscrewing, I generally tend to use Loctite. I don't know what your preference is. I know some people frown on Loctite because it's not permanent, but it can be somewhat
1: permanent. Uh, but uh, I'm if all you... about Loctite. No, I'm, I'm definitely up for some Loctite. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't treat it as being permanent as, like, properly bolting something and using a locking washer. Uh, but that would be the only other option I could think is a locking washer or just something to put some friction. I mean, there's one point where I couldn't find anything, so I had to use uh, like a plumber's tape, like tape for pipes. Oh, like wrap, the Teflon tape? Yeah, and wrap okay. that around just to add some more friction so it would lock into place. So, uh, but you know what? If it holds, it holds, and that's all that matters at the end of the day.
0: Now tell me a little bit more about your rig. What are you shooting on or what do you normally shoot on when you don't have it rented
1: out? Um, it's, you know what, it's just a hodgepodge of rails. It's, uh, uh, it's a cheap foam shoulder mount right now. And then, um, some rails that just simply, it's two rails that go forward with a T and then I added some grips to it and then a bunch of weights in the back and the battery. And it's, it's Basically just made from several parts from eBay. Uh, It at least just doesn't look that cheap. But that's why I've been waiting, which, you know, we know it probably won't happen. But uh, for a Kickstarter project that I think is already maybe three months late, four months late. But they are putting together a shoulder rig uh, that's actually um, full metal, has a spot for a giant uh, gold mount or V mount battery in the back provides power to whatever camera you've got running in the front, and it kind of converts your DSLR size into an on-the-shoulder camera all as one piece. While it's also having audio inputs, it's supposedly going to have really good uh, DACs. And so the idea is you put your camera on there, you hook the camera up to the rig, you hook your audio into the rig, and then any power you need in the back of the rig – and you have this ENG style where it's even supposed to have a built-in uh, ear monitor, like built into the side of it, wood oh, like nice. you would on an ENG and stuff like that. So a lot of stuff like that that's supposed to make it super uh, easy to use to take your uh, DSLR and make it more usable in the field with batteries that will last all day, proper audio, room for wireless packs to be attached to the camera. So I've been waiting for that shoulder rig to come out. Um, it's It's been progress. They've had some trouble trying to find uh, the – the people to mill the steel steel, I guess. But uh, so I'm hoping for that to come out. because that I'll look a lot more professional than my hodgepodge of eBay parts and 15 millimeter rails and adapters.
0: You know, I know rigs are pretty popular and I have a number of rigs, but I generally don't do the whole shoulder mount thing. I usually will either have like a neck strap and have my camera in my hand and use that as like a three point mount, or I'll actually run around with a monopod. And I know that's a little weird, but man, a monopod, you can basically get in and get out really fast. You have a stable base for your camera and the the one I have actually has the hand grip built into it. So you can pull down on it and that kind of gives you like a stable point. Plus you can cheat and sort of pan with your monopod Mm -hmm. and you can do like basic moves without it being jerky or or messy. And the nice thing about that is it's sort of tripod-esque and... When someone yells at me and tells me I'm not supposed to be shooting somewhere that I'm shooting, I can immediately grab it and run. With the shoulder rig or something like that, um, you know, I'm a little more conspicuous. I can't pack up quite as fast. Now, I'm not saying go out and shoot with no permits because that's a bad idea. No, never do that. But if you're in a situation where the budget didn't dictate anything for locations, that might be the way to go. Uh, The other thing that's really nice and handy if you're looking for something extremely cheap is something like uh, this guy right here. This is basically just a flash bracket for your camera. Right now I have it with the GoPro, and this is the combat cage on the GoPro, by the way, so if you're wondering what the heck that is. But the nice thing is, is it just gives you an extra hand to hold onto while you press up against the camera, a little bit of stabilization. There's even a few people that have gotten wacky with this and screwed two of them together, so you have one on either side. And it gives you a couple of cold shoe adapters to hook your stuff onto. And these are only like $7. So if you don't want to spend money on a rig and you just need something cheap to hold your camera and kind of give you a little bit of extra support and mounting, these little L brackets are a nice featured little device to have especially as cheap as they are you know seven dollars isn't much of an investment
1: and you, even if you're doing smaller dslrs like a sony nex uh has been really popular in the past as well as uh a lot of people like the canon uh, eos um their mirrorless mount uh little little cameras like that you can just get some flash brackets together screw them together and you've got yourself a rig for you know 20 bucks
0: yeah, and uh, there's also some PVC hacks out there. If you <laughs> check out uh, the Frugal Filmmaker, I know Scott pretty well. He's a good guy, and uh, he's got a couple of builds where he basically just grabbed a bunch of you know PVC pipe and put together a rig, and then you know screwed down a mounting plate and got his quick release on there, and then got it working. They're a little janky, but if you spray paint them black from a distance, they look fairly decent, and they work for you know just whatever you need, and you can make them into any kind of shape you want. While we're talking about small cameras, though, this is the other kind of cool thing that I've got. And this is a $6 or $5 adapter for your GoPro. And if you look here, it's basically just a screen or a protector for your lens. You know, the GoPros come with a case, and you slide them into the case, and that's fine. A lot of times that, that works okay, but if you need good audio out of them... The speakers and the microphone and everything is all underneath plastic, so they sound pretty muffled. You can attach a USB cable to that or use one of the open brackets, but oftentimes you just want to grab your GoPro really quick, shoot something, maybe talk while you're shooting it. And this little screen protector keeps you from scratching up the lens. They're 6 or $7 on Amazon, and you can find them in all different flavors. This one's from Newer. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Newer, the brand you can trust. But uh, still, they're pretty good. So uh, do you shoot with a GoPro? Yeah,
1: I do. I do shoot with a GoPro. I got two. I've got a three and a three plus. And um, you you make me feel silly because I don't run with any protection on my GoPros. Um, At all? No, I I noticed something when I watched a lot of the GoPro commercials, and GoPro is pretty good about not showing GoPros in the commercial uh, because it would ruin the aesthetics of what they're trying to create. Uh, But when you do see GoPros being used in the commercials and behind-the-scenes shots, almost always uh, they just ran it without a case. They just ran it completely naked. And in some of my own tests, it's true. I got a little better contrast and a little better sharpness not being inside of a case or having anything in front of the lens. It's a really good lens, but if you want the maximum sharpness, uh, then you've got to go with it naked. Most of the time, too, I mean, my lenses are pretty exposed to my DSLR, so I never consider that too much of an issue. But the GoPros do get put in uh, dangerous places, so I understand that. If I'm putting it on the side of a car yeah, I'll go ahead and put the case on it. If I'm putting it inside a car, no, I'll leave the case off and just run with it naked with the naked case. I do have a cap that you pick up for a couple of bucks, and I do that when I need to throw in my bag, pull that real quick and get a picture or something like that. But, I mean, that's a really good solution too. It's just one of those that uh, I shied away from because it didn't fit uh, what I was trying to achieve. I really, you know, haven't noticed
0: that much of a difference, but honestly, when I'm using a GoPro (laughs) shot, it's – it's so quick Mm -hmm. and it's not something that's going to, you know, occupy the entire shoot that it doesn't really matter that much to me as long as it (laughs) kind of looks good enough that I'm okay with it. Um, but you're probably right. There are different ways to do that. There's also, um, a a different company makes an adapter for your GoPro. That's actually a threaded adapter and allows you to actually attach filters to the front of it. It doesn't have its own glass element. So you do have to buy your own filter separately. And I, I believe it uses some small variant to filter, but that allows you to put NDs and any other kind of, filter that you want on
1: there so you could spend a little bit more money and put nice glass. and you know what i've i've got that ex- like that what you have over the lens right there uh which is a small ring with a, a plastic clear kind of uh, lens protector filter lens on yep. it uh, i've got the exact same form factor but with nd Uh, because I almost always, if I'm outside or it's bright, I put NDs on my GoPros, uh, just to get the shutter speed where it should be. I can tell really fast, uh, if I'm trying to create a kind of cinematic image or something like that. And like, I often am putting GoPros on the outside of cars, uh, you'll notice like the road is not a blur when it should be a blur. Any other camera you shoot with at 1 of a speed or even one forty-eighth of a speed, the road's going to be a blur when people are driving at 60 miles an hour. So I'll put the ND on there because without that, the GoPro's is going to jack up the shutter speed to compensate for the exposure. And you kind of lose that aesthetic and that feeling of speed and things like that. So I've got tons of NDs for my GoPros. Just for the sake of helping, when I need that kind of feeling of speed or I want more motion blur, or something like that. Also, to it really helps when you're using the quadcopter and doing that kind of flying thing or remove some of the jellos by making it uh, expose a little longer. But uh, so you know, different strokes for different folks. But.
0: Yeah. And I, there's a lot of different ways to use GoPros. Um, I find myself a lot of times I just need like the uh, last time I used this one in particular, this is the three black edition. I um, I handed it off to somebody and I just needed a first person perspective of them running away from somebody and then reaching out. So I was like, okay, just hold it to your chest and run. And they're like, oh, okay. So, you know, I wanted a little bit of audio so I could kind of hear what was going on. So I just took it out of the case, handed it to him like this. Um, if I'm using the full, full blown case, it's usually because blood is getting sprayed all over it or, you know, it's being <laughs> dropped into guts or I'm throwing it off of something. I actually, I have a cage, another cage for the GoPro and it's not the combat cage. Um, I, I don't remember what the name of the cage is, but it fully covers it. And there was, I did a demo on this and you can watch the video on YouTube. I ran over it with a truck just to see how tough it is. <laughs> but that one, like there's a, there was a scene where I needed to throw somebody off of a building. And I needed to do that with the camera, so I wanted their perspective all the way down. And by wrapping the camera up in that and tossing it off of the building, I was able to get the shot. And you're right, uh, having an ND filter, that's a good way to go. Definitely consider that. But for that particular shot, I didn't really care. I just needed a camera in that perspective. So... Chucking it off with just the plastic case and then that metal bracket around it was enough to protect it from breaking the plastic or breaking the GoPro. And that was five stories, maybe six stories I was tossing that down to the ground. So, And, it, hey, you got the shot. Yeah, exactly. And that was actually my – the one I'm holding here is actually the Hero 4 Black Edition. So that was this guy flying in the air. I, that's what I originally bought this combat cage for, actually, is for protecting it when I'm doing something like that. But the, as you can see, the combat cage doesn't actually cover the entire unit, so it's not really protecting it completely. It's just giving you a metal the mounting system. half is pretty exposed. Yeah, exactly. It's just a metal mounting system. And that's the combat cage. The other one, uh, you know, you can look it up. Uh, there's uh, an article on DSLR Filming There's probably about three
1: it. now. There's probably three now, now that I think about it, though, of uh, cages to put your GoPros in.
0: Yeah, there's a few companies. Um, after the, this one was kicked, this was another Kickstarter project. This one showed up late as well, so I will shake my fist at that. But uh, the Combat Cage was one of the first ones, and then right after that, a couple. Uh, the Cobalt Cage, I believe, is the other one. The Cobalt Cage came out right after that, and then a bunch of of the Chinese manufacturers started to kind of mimic that style. And now, if you go on eBay and you look for a cage for your GoPro, you're going to find you know twenty or thirty to choose from. There's all different flavors, shapes, and makes, and they you know, they're probably okay. Uh, it's really hard to kind of mess that up as long as it covers the entire camera and keeps it from, you know, face planning in the cement. You're usually good to go. <laughs> now, moving on to other camera news, I've got the RCC Droid Pro. Uh, for those of you who are Sony A7S shooters or a 7 or A772s, uh, you probably don't have much in way of camera controls by tethering. But uh, RCC Droid Pro is now released an app that gives you full tethering of these cameras. So you have full control over your Sony a7S or the a7 Mark II or any of these other ones. The only thing is, is that Sony does not allow for external monitoring. So With this particular setup, you know, I've talked about the Canon setup in the past where you can hook your phone up to it, tether and you can actually see what's on the screen. With the Sony cameras, you only get control over the shutter and the other basic controls. You don't get to actually see the video on the screen so that's kind of a bummer but this is a slight advancement do you use any of these cell phone tethering apps or wi-fi tethering or anything like that with your cameras
1: um you know i tried to the live view for the canon uh through the tethering which i did hook up a tablet and everything else um it, it was a bit slow for me i could see it working in a very stationary talking head kind of a situation but uh ultimately i ended up going out and spending a few hundred on an actual uh monitor to take care of that Uh, But still, this kind of stuff seems like it's lacking in features, but it comes in so handy when you go, oh, crap, I need to get a jib shot or something like that. I need to set this up on top of a ladder, you know, Um, or some other hard-to-reach place, and I need to hit record or take a picture or something like that. Some of this stuff definitely looks like it's built for time-lapsing as well as saying, um, you know, shutter release via sound monitor makes me think that... um, it's going to listen for loud noises and then take a picture. So a lot of stuff like that makes me think of trail cams because that's becoming more popular now yeah. um, for game hunting and stuff like that. So there's still there's still a lot of cool things here, and you can preview pictures once you take them, and it can help you operate the camera remotely, uh, which is all I wanted from the GH3. I mean, a lot of people were complaining, oh, what, the app doesn't show me the video while it's recording? Yeah, that'd be nice. But at the end of the day, when it's you know so far away from me, I just want to be able to hit record on it or take a picture, so.
0: They did fix that on the GH4. Uh, The Wi-Fi tethering for the GH4 is actually somewhat useful. You can monitor, it's not too much of a delay, and you still get to see what's uh, being recorded while the camera is recording, so that's kind of handy, and in fact, that's probably the best implementation (laughs) of that sort of feature I've seen on No one else has
1: done it like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, the uh, Canon offered it in the 6D, and I think it's also available in the 7D Mark II, but the Wi-Fi tethering for the 60 was only available in photo mode and not in video mode. So you had to use an external hack, uh, like a TipLink router, or you had to plug mm-hmm. in your phone with one of those OTG cables in order to adapt your camera and then plug your phone into it. And you're right. They work basically the best thing they're for is if you are doing something like product shots or you're in the studio by yourself and you want to make sure that the camera's in focus. If you have an autofocus lens attached to your Canon DSLR, you can basically touch the screen, focus, uh, zoom in to check that focus, and then start recording all with this handheld remote that's plugged into your camera and you don't have to walk back Mm -hmm. around a bunch of times. So that's a pretty handy way to go. But for actual live work and you know having a, a a person with like a you know a stabilizer or something not running around, it's not really. Uh that fast refresh rate and you're only getting maybe 15 or 16 frames a second so yeah it's delayed by a couple seconds and it's slow refresh rate so you can actually have them turn the camera at you and then you can look down and you can see the camera turn at you after it's already turned at you that's the kind of like <laughs> delay you're talking about so it's not really good for high motion and then it's back to monitors now the speaking of monitors have you used any of these, wi- uh, these wireless HDMI transmitters or receivers? I've tried a couple of them, but the only one I've had good luck with was the Paralynx parallax arrow, I believe, a paralynx arrow. Uh, I haven't used any of the other ones that are out there. Have you tested anything?
1: uh on my list soon uh is gonna be to purchase the consumer version of the arrow link which because i'm pretty sure they're using the same chipset i'm pretty sure it's all the same stuff it's just uh actually i got in trouble about that
0: i did you yes i did uh there's a company that makes one that's about 200 bucks and you can buy it on amazon and it's consumer grade for your house and i had said oh it uses the same chipset because i was just doing some basic digging into it to find out. And it turns out that where those two differ is that the Parallax Arrow or Paralink Arrow uses a propri- a, a licensed Kodak to encode its HD video going across the stream, whereas mm-hmm. these other ones use uh, some kind of hodgepodge or... Cheaper Kodak, that, you know I don't know the exact terminology, yeah. but he emailed me about it when I had originally done a write up on the cheaper one. I'm like, it's the same yeah. thing. Uh, the other thing is the transmitter distance and the amount of current they take are greatly different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: very different. But I was going to look at, uh, you know, I th- I'm sure there's a couple that rebranded and sell it. But uh, the Nyrus Aries, if I'm saying that right, is the consumer version. It's 200 bucks on Amazon. Uh, I plan to pick that up because hey, even if it's not uh, good for filmmaking or remote monitoring. Uh, I know that I can use it around the house to send a computer or something like that to the big screen TV. So now speaking of discount
0: products, I talked about this the last podcast and a number of you emailed me and hit me up for a little bit more information. I mentioned the Watson battery charger. This is a dual battery charger system that has replaceable plates And one of the things that you'll find out if you start looking on BNH or Amazon is that they charge somewhere in the range of $80 or $85 for this guy. But there is a nice way to buy this where you can get it a lot cheaper than you would normally. If you buy a unit with a very unpopular battery type, say an older GoPro adapter or an older uh, Panasonic type battery. They don't sell very well, so they actually sell for a lot less. And this is branded under a few different labels. Watson is the one that I use, but uh, Pearstone, Prestone, however you want to pronounce that, makes another one. Mm-hmm. And they sell one of theirs on B&H for as low as $19. Now, the reason this is a good deal is because the plates are interchangeable, and b also sells the plates for $1.99 apiece. So, for about $8, mm-hmm. you can buy two different sets of battery plates for this, and you're still well under the $40 or $80 range that you would spend on this with, say, the Canon LPE 6 battery plates. Do you use any of these generic chargers or dual chargers?
1: Uh, absolutely. Right after you posted that, I went ahead and bought it because to be frank, the Sony version, the one that comes with the Sony plates that goes for like, I think 60 or 70 on Amazon right now, uh, has been in my wish list for a long time, but I couldn't pull the trigger because I couldn't justify it. And then just, I'm so surprised that like the GoPro version or what have you goes for such a cheap price, um, I guess that's marketing. I don't know how else to describe that, but I instantly bought one up. I have a slightly cheaper one that I use. Uh, the one thing that seems to be somewhat lacking uh, is usually a feature set of a fast charge mode occasionally when you need it. Um, but for something like that, you got to spend $120 if you want like a Sony fast charge and you got to buy it from Sony. Um but for all intents and purposes, buying a couple of these up so I can have all my batteries charging at the same time is well worth it. If you've got uh, back-to-back shoots and, uh, you know, you just finish shooting something, you got something the next morning. So I haven't had any problems with them except that because they are smarter, uh, the really cheap ones or the cheap batteries that go bad on me. Uh, which of course, if you're buying Sony, there's a ton of off brands and they aren't all the same. Um, The ones that go bad don't usually charge off of this. They'll start for a while and then they'll just quit up and don't turn up anything. And that's because in general, the battery is mostly dead because the battery is a piece of crap. You get what you pay for. Um, But, for all the good batteries and i like uh wasabi or something yeah like wasabi that. makes, makes some in, decent uh, brand a Second, uh, you know, yeah it's wasabi uh wasabi
0: makes some yeah, uh, newer yeah. th- that brand that we were talking about a little bit earlier uh they make some <laughs> yeah. there are a number of them um honestly guys if you're going for generic batteries there are the bottom bottom tier they're middle tier and then there's <laughs> like the above tier wasabi's probably triple or quadruple the price of the rest of the batteries uh, in the like generic market. They're still a quarter of the price of Mm -hmm. the official batteries, but they're a bit pricey. The nice thing about the Wasabi batteries is they have a a really decent warranty. So if the batteries ever do go TU on you, you can send them back and they're good about replacing them it's not that big of an issue. And the other thing is the batteries are generally made from good cells. Uh, A lot of the companies that sell the really cheap ones They buy the cells from like questionable sources or, you know, when they make these battery cells, they kind of make them at a plant and then shove them into any form factor they can think of. Well, the plant has stuff that passes, stuff that doesn't pass, but is sort of working and then stuff that's even lower grade than that. And usually they can buy those in bulk and put them into these batteries and that's what you're ending up with. So be careful on that. Also on that fast charge thing, um, watch out because... Some batteries, if you fast charge them, especially the generic ones, will actually overheat and then they'll never charge again. So keep an eye on that if you're working on the fast charge. As far as this charger goes, this dual charger though, um, man, it's handy to have around, especially with the plates, because packing, and that's where I love it, is actually you can pack six or seven plates into a small space as opposed to the size of a wall wart for every single freaking charger. And this guy also has a two amp output on the USB port. So if you have like a GoPro or you have something like that, that's USB powered or it can be charged via USB, that two amp output gives you a lot better, faster charge than if you say plugged it into a 0.5 amp or 500 milliamp, uh, you know, PC or laptop or whatever. It takes forever to charge something on your computer. But if you have that two amp charging port, then you can really charge it fast. The other that's, cool and, thing is the button, yes. <laughs> the test button. Yes, uh, sorry, man. Um, yeah. The test button, I forgot about this. Um, you can test batteries on this too. So if you have batteries that have been sitting for a while, it'll actually put a small load on it and give you a readout of the voltage on the battery. Uh, and it doesn't give you the actual voltage. It gives you like a, this is almost fully charged to 75% indicator type of thing, but that's still pretty awesome. And it'll power up off of the battery itself. So you don't actually have to have the battery yeah. plugged in
1: you have a portable battery tester, which is great when you're on set and you've got a bag full of batteries and you go, oh, wait, which one's the ones that are charged? Do you mark your batteries? Because I kind of have a rubber band I do. scheme. I do. I mark them with tape. I, I, I don't use rubber bands. I use gaffer's tape, and I use gaffer's tape on SD cards. But I tend to be good about marking my batteries and marking my SD cards. Uh, but it's helpful, too, when um, – uh, you start running into situations situation where you start running out of power. And, of course, you, I usually keep a battery charger, at least in the trunk of my car, so I can charge stuff up while I'm out doing something else. And um, for those kind of situations, uh, it's great to have something like that around so you can start charging something because it does take a while. It's not a fast charger, and I wouldn't fast charge the cheap batteries like you say anyways. I'd be afraid of them blowing up. But uh, it's, it's great and handy to have, and that's why like, I have three of these now.
0: Now, one pro tip for Canon users, and this is something someone at Canon actually pointed out to me, and the clone batteries do this as well. Uh, If you look here on the video, and for audio guys, sorry about that, but you get those little um, orangish plates that go on your Canon batteries, and if you look on the bottom, there's actually a little battery indicator cutout on that. What a lot of people do, and what Canon actually originally designed these for, is to put onto your battery in one direction, and it shows the blue tag. You put it on the other direction, and it shows the white tag. So by flipping this back and forth, and you have to decide on what color you want to mean what, you can either have it basically label the battery as charged or label the battery as uncharged. So these plates, if you have them around, keep that in mind, and that's a very easy way to tell and to mark your batteries without putting tape on them or anything else. I personally have a bag of rubber bands. And before I go on a shoot, I wrap them all around the charged batteries, toss them into a little pencil bag and then throw them in my pack. So that's kind of where I track my charged or uncharged batteries. But you know, as long as you mark them and know what's what you probably won't run into too much confusion. Battery management's kind of not that sexy, but it's a thing you have to do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, we've got some Absolute. a few discussion topics here. The Olympus EM5 Mark II, uh, there's a couple of posts out there, and I uh, believe this one's from DP Review, and they were basically kind of bagging on the HD quality of the Olympus EM5 Mark II.
1: Did you take a look at any of this? Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, – I mean, is, is this official – the camera they're using is this official release or is this a test camera?
0: I was reading through that to try because... and, and get more information out. They don't really say unofficial firmware running, but uh, they do still have the first impressions logo. So this may be some sort of beta. Uh, let me look at the quote here where they're talking about it. It says, Sadly, our initial tests still suggest that despite the climb in bitrate, the footage is still being somewhat. Undermined by the slightly clumsy processing. The output looks a lot like the less expensive EM10 and somewhat less than the Panasonic GH4. Um, they're basically saying, like, hey, this isn't keeping up with the GH4 and it's kind of putting out video quality that's in the more prosumer price range as opposed to some of its more uh, sought after brothers. I don't know if this is the case or not. One of the things I was reading on um, a, a couple of the forums, people were complaining that previous versions of Olympus's cameras have, have been plagued with uh, poor video codecs, and a lot of people suspect it's not actually the codec they're using but how they process the image off of the sensor. I don't know if that's the case. You are more of an Olympus guy than I am, so what do you know about it?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't call myself an Olympus guy. Um it this looks like um kind of like what we talked about with that that Bayer pattern and subsampling pixels and what have you um it definitely too they're they're comparing it to the GH4 which in my opinion is one of the sharpest looking cameras there is and possibly a little too sharp for some people um but it's one of those that i feel like it, this this could be the way that the engine works. It could be settings inside of their processing engine um, in the way that it downsamples and subsamples its sensor, and but still, I feel like it shouldn't be this bad. I feel like it's kind of around that level where uh, some of the like moire and stuff like that is kind of reaching levels of what a 5D Mark II is, which still isn't terrible. Um, like let, remember that all this other stuff you're getting with the camera. So it makes me think that this is definitely, uh, this is something to keep an eye on, but I don't think that this is necessarily final firmware yet or something that can't be improved, uh, slightly depending on how they change things because it's, I know normally in the firmware, they don't do much adjustments with their algorithms and stuff like that, but this looks like it's slightly worse than it should be. So, I kind of want to wait until I get raw footage, like downloaded samples of what it looks like at its full bitrate before I make a decision. Because um, once again, this is pixel peeping and I don't do a whole lot of pixel peeping, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, does this stack up against what I use and is this uh, good enough for me? So... You know, to each their own. Um, you, on the other hand, are probably now, because you got your heart set on that JVC, probably don't care so much about the Mark II. Uh, but this is, I want to see actual uh, video sample footage before I m- make a decision on if this camera is actually, you know, viable as a video camera.
0: I think my next camera purchase is probably just going to be another GH4. I've been eyeballing Olympus for a little while, but. Um... <laughs> uh Dave in the chat room pointed out uh last week to me that uh basically this Olympus is gonna make me have to learn a brand new set of controls for the camera and i've kind of already you know <laughs> i've gotten down the uh g h four pretty well i've gotten down all these other cameras that I shoot and do I really need to learn another setup another <laughs> you know menu system everything else? it's starting to be too much. Like I, I was on a shoot um, a, a couple weeks ago and I was shooting on mostly the five D Mark three and the GH four. And I was bouncing back and forth between the two and I got to the GH four and I was like, man, where's the ISO at on this, you know, like, cause you get used to just dialing in the, the little clicker on the 5D Mark III, And so then I was searching through it and then I forgot, Oh yeah, there's a button on top of the camera and you just push that and there you go. And it's the same with uh, you know, white balance and some of these other things. Like you get used to the location of the buttons where you almost kind of have a feel for it and you don't think about it. You just push it and adjust and go. But when you're going back and forth between multiple types of cameras, it starts to get sort of confusing and hard to remember where everything's at, especially the GH4 and the Canon 5D Mark III to a little bit lesser extent have pretty in-depth menus that are seven to nine pages long. And sometimes they're not labeled the most clear. You're looking at this and you're like, well, what does this mean? what is this for? What does this do exactly? And, and sometimes you're just looking for something simple, like, Hey, I need to turn the headphone jack up or, you know, Hey, I need to, you know, turn the audio down for the audio input and there's shortcut keys on the front of the camera. And once you learn those, that's great. But if you don't, and you're digging through the menu or trying to figure it out and every camera you add is just another thing you have to remember. I kind of want to get back to where I was when I had two five D Mark three where I have two identical cameras running back and forth between them, (laughs) setting them up. It's no big issue. And with the GH4, I think I'll probably end up in that same category where I have two GH4s and I can just go back and forth and the settings are the same. Everything is pretty much the same at both cameras and I don't have to worry about trying to figure stuff out. So maybe no Olympus, probably no JVC.
1: Yeah,
0: it's nice. it's (laughs) nice to have the duplicates. And plus, you know... Man, I do, I, as much as I want the JVC, $4,000 buys a lot of lenses. And uh, honestly, I spend more money on probably on glass than I do on bodies. So that money could be spent on, I don't know, the really sexy Olympus 40 to 150 that I kind of been jonesing after lately. Or one of those other really awesome lenses because that'll do more for me than probably another body.
1: Yeah, and I'd, I'd agree with that. That's why I kind of like the idea of sticking with the Panasonic line and going with, um, you know, a GH4 to add to my GH3 uh, just because, you know, the codex, the look, and everything else is so similar. It makes it a lot easier in post when you're not dealing with multiple camera types.
0: Now, one last thing on the discussion list here is actually rigs, and we kind of touched on this earlier but Devin, when do you think you really need a rig? I know a lot of people see these and they think, oh, man, I want to have this sexy, you know, super professional thing. But when do you actually need it?
1: Uh, you know what? There's there's two times that I need it. And, um, and when I don't need a rig uh, is important, I think, in the definition because – uh, like you brought up the thing with monopods, and I think that 's great. I actually have a Mogopod myself, and I love it i don 't know if that 's uh, considered a cheaper monopod by other people, but all the mount options it 's a Gopro pole uh, you know it it has some belt system too that you could do crane like shots with or whatever it have but uh, mogopod I just love it because it 's fast and it 's easy and it 's a great uh, pod that 's really compact and really is easy to move around. When I do need a camera rig, um, it's either, one, to impress a client. Uh, let's face it, that's part of the business is showing up with a matte box just to make clients feel confident about the money they've spent on you. Matte boxes, I, know sh- I scoff at you. <laughs> <laughs> I know it shouldn't matter, but um, also, too, uh, when I was just out at a shoot in um, uh, Gary, Indiana, uh, where we were shooting super run-down uh, houses and stuff like that in churches – uh, we were using an 8mm Rokinon with, um, I think, a, a, a speed booster or something like that for the Blackmagic Pocket. And in that case, I needed NDs. I was shooting outside. Uh, and so the only way to do that is with a matte box. So then some kind of rigging is necessary to get all that kind of stuff to work. And I really do like follow focuses uh, just because it's something bigger to grip on with my rig. Uh, the main thing I really like about rig. Or rigging up is weight and adding weight to the camera and I know that sounds really silly because uh, mostly everyone's into being lighter and I'm into being lighter too of carrying my equipment to the shoot um, but depending on what exactly I'm capturing I think weight of a camera makes a huge difference when the camera is light and the camera is able to be easily it's hard to describe but twisted uh, like you have that yaw Um, when you're moving around and stuff like that, you get some really weird angles and it accentuates the jello and everything else that happens because your camera's kind of vibrating and doing all these little micro motions. Uh, when you have a big fat heavy camera, um, a lot of that stuff goes away. And I think that that's also part of to the, you know, the film look that everyone talks about and goes after. I think part of that too, is that when you do a following shot of someone walking down the hallway, Uh, Even if you go handheld on it and you're not doing a glide cam or something like that, a big uh, heavy rig, a rig with weight, it's just not going to do that kind of yaw motion. It's going to mostly stay ahead and move around as the cameraman moves around and it won't have little small vibrations in it. I can almost always tell when somebody is hand-holding a really small camera, whether it's a DSLR or a cell phone or something like that, because it just has this kind of shake and jiggle to it that for me is just easy to pick up and identify. And that's one of the biggest things I notice about um, uh, a lot of young filmmakers who are shooting shorts and stuff like that who get a T2I or something and they go out and start shooting. And I can tell that they don't have a rig or anything because when they start running around with that little camera, it, it, it the jello it comes out a lot more and everything else. It gets really, uh, really difficult to get that kind of I don't know cinematic look to it that you, you know, have so to learn to walk important.
0: too. You know, there's kind of a a way about walking, even with a rig or even with the camera just in your hand, that you kind of do this weird like to your chest and like walk slowly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of new filmmakers when they've never really done that and don't know what it looks like. Even with a the rig, though, you'll see a mess up where they're just like bouncing around and stuff. And it,
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a technique to it. It's not something you you learn overnight um but it's it's one of those things where i go it's it, and when you hold it next to you it's like then you can't really see what's on the screen so it's there's things you can do and definitely the more experience you are with working with cameras and looking at your own footage and being like what did i do right what did i do wrong uh you'll start to pick up techniques on how to hold and operate a camera in the best way of that situation uh but that's really the reason why i do it i like to be small and mobile and all that other stuff and that's all good stuff Uh, But sometimes for a lot of this stuff, I'm adding some weights and I'm trying to put it on a shoulder because I'm trying to uh, stabilize it. And it seems silly when you're like, oh, it's got, you know, image stabilization and stuff like that built onto the lens. I go, "Eh, I could still tell. I can still tell it's not kind of moving with a person. It's moving independent of a person and sometimes you want that feeling it all depends on what you're shooting for what the filmmaker wants and everything else some people like glide cams the three axis gimbals are a whole different look so you know camera motion is complex as it is but that's why I kind of prefer adding weight and putting it on the shoulder.
0: The monopod system that I was talking about, I actually posted a link to this in the show notes. Um, my monopod's a little bit more advanced than the average monopod. <laughs> and if you look through, um, this was a Kickstarter and this actually was one of the ones that one of the first ones I ever backed. And it actually came through pretty well. Um, this is an adapter handle system that clamps on to a standard Manfrotto monopod. And it gives you wheels so that you have a slider. It gives you two hand grips so that you can extend your camera out and hold it in a fashion that makes it comfortable. And it has multiple points to actually mount your camera along the rail of the monopod itself as well as on top of the monopod. And because of that, you basically have, I don't want to say an all-in-one kit because with these sorts of devices, it never does one thing perfectly, but it does a lot of stuff pretty decently. And I don't know if... Honestly, they make these anymore. This is the Moto Grip, if you are wondering what I'm talking about. So go online and look for that. I'm not sure if he still manufactures really cool. or not. But uh I got in on the Kickstarter. It's a great item. He had them machined in California and uh I got mine pretty fast and I keep it with me and use it all the time. It's a really handy device. And you even have a review of it, don't you? Yeah, there's I have a review up somewhere <laughs> of this probably. Um I've had this thing for I don't know, a couple of years, I think I bought it back in like 2012 or 2011, something like that. But uh, it's pretty awesome and it's really handy and it's something I, I always carry with me and people ask about. They're like, you know, what is that? Where do you get that? And uh, that's sort of my major rig. I have a few other ones. Um, a bull. I have a bulldog rig. And when you mentioned holding it to your chest and not being able to see the screen... One of the things that's nice about the Bulldog-style rig is it actually just has two handles, one on either side, and then it has a large flat mounting plate on the top. So the way it's designed is you actually mount your monitor down on the top of the uh, flat plate on top where the camera goes, and you hold the camera at your chest. Now, I know a lot of people like to do the shoulder rig thing but I never really cared for the perspective that you got out of the shoulder rig. I used it for a while and thought, man, okay, this is okay. And then I started doing the kind of chest height shooting. And to me, that sort of carrying area looks a little bit more natural than having the camera kind of up at eye level. And I don't know if I, you know, maybe I'm just imagining this. I've got this all, you know, in my head somewhere. I'm crazy, but it seems to me like a much better looking style to carry the rig like that. Uh, most of the time Mm -hmm. though, the only time I outfit my, my camera with a full blown rig is if I have to attach a lot of stuff, if I don't have to attach a lot of stuff, I just have little simple things like that L bracket I was talking about, or a little adapter handle for the bottom of the camera or a neck strap where I can kind of apply a little bit of force against my neck as I'm walking with the camera. And the reason is, is because honestly, I want to move in and I want to move out. I don't want to have a ton of stuff on there. And if I do have to have a ton of stuff, usually I'm going to be bolted down onto something. That's where this monster rig right here comes in. This uh, (laughs) Lotus rig is, uh, it's the Lotus Talon, by the way, if anybody's wondering. I finally went and looked that up. Um, This is a heavy-duty piece of kit, and it weighs quite a bit. And it's not really for something that you want to carry around. It's just it's too bulky for that. This weighs twice as much as a camera monitor and everything put together. But when you need to bolt down your camera and strap a bunch of stuff to it, you know, a field monitor, maybe a Ninja recording system, you want to put some audio gear on there as well, and you're in a studio environment, then you can kind of set this up with whatever you want, have it all good to go with some LED screens and some arms and stuff like that hanging off of it, and you don't have to worry about torsioning the cold shoe plate on your camera camera um honestly when i'm out shooting i don't normally rig up very much that uh, mono or that moto grip is about as riggy as i get and i have a few other like random things i do have the cage for the uh, gh4 the verivon cage but i don't really consider that a rig as much simply because the gh4 is so small that all that is is kind of like drawing an outline around it uh, most of these other rigs you see are shoulder <laughs> rigs, or they have uh, rails or something like that, and they're really making the camera big. I try to go as small as possible. And I'm, in fact, I was just talking about uh, this with somebody yesterday. The A7S is a little bit too small for me, but I don't want to put a full size rig on it. And small uh, rig, I was, you know, I mentioned their little adapter product. They have a pretty sexy little, like, kind of half C shaped cage for the A7S. That again. I don't feel like that's a rig necessarily. So it's not providing support as much as it is like, Oh, I just need to attach something to it really quick or, Oh, I need to thread in a little handle or something like that. Now I have the little extra area to do that. So maybe I'm weird, but uh, I'm not a huge rig guy unless they are buttoned down mostly. Is that strange?
1: No, no, no. And, and I have a very similar philosophy. Like I said, it comes to camera movement and, uh, especially if I'm not doing handheld for because it's a talking head, it's corporate professional, what have you. If I'm not doing handheld, I have no rigging on the camera, um, unless I need a mat box in order to impress people <laughs> <laughs> by this size of my mat box. But um, uh, so a lot of times it's like, yeah, a, a tiny, a small little cage, maybe just to put on audio receivers, like wireless receivers or something like that is all I need. And that's all I want. So that without, putting anything on or taking anything off, I can fit it in the bag and pull it out, plug it in and turn it on. So uh, I'm all about that. It's just when it comes to handheld stuff, I go the extra distance. Maybe it's because I'm not that good at doing handheld camera work or what, but uh, that's, I, I'm just, I'm with you. I'm with you as small as I can make it as possible while still getting the shot I want.
0: Well, the other thing too, guys, um, if you're relying on the image stabilization inside of your lens, it's not that, not that good. So really practice, <laughs> Um practice handheld shooting and, you know, you know, learn to kind of walk with the camera. And I think there's even n- not in my area, but if you live in like California in the LA area, there's classes on handheld shooting and they go through a lot of this stuff and, and they're all part of like a training seminar or whatever, maybe go to one of those or, or watch somebody who's been doing it a while. That's really good at it. If you watch a few of the YouTube channels that have kind of walking reviews, uh digital rev does this a lot. The guy that does their filming, he holds on to the camera handheld with nothing more than basically a strap on his hand, but he's he's been doing it for so long great and he's so stable he at it <laughs> that the camera doesn't shake like you think it would. And it doesn't move or wobble. And it's the, the same thing with a, a lot of these other deals where if you're using a slider that doesn't have any sort of resistance, you have to really practice before you get that smooth hand with the handheld shooting and just the camera. You still, even with image stabilization in the lens, you're still going to have to hold it. That's what was so exciting about the Olympus uh, EM5 bringing this all the way back around is that the in-house stabilization, the in-camera stabilization uh, looked even more significant than what we were getting out of uh, the lenses. So maybe that is the win-all solution for, for rigs and no rigs and image stabilization, and all that stuff. I don't actually know. I want to mess with it, but uh, again, that's down the road. All right. That's enough rig talk. Last thing on the list is pick of the week. What do you got, Devin?
1: uh you know what this uh the scarlet uh 2i2 um i'm gonna be doing a review on this on my website uh later this week and um putting through the paces but so far there's a lot to like uh it's not perfect but i've used other rigs around this price point and there's a lot to like about it so for um portable recording i mean a lot of the time too laptops are so cheap and so available that even if I don't have uh, an H4n or something like that, considering on features and stuff like that, uh, I'll end up using these kind of USB-powered uh, audio interfaces uh, for getting nice, clean audio and um, getting that recorded into a wave format or whatever I need for production.
0: So my pick of the week is actually something very simple. It's this tiny little cable right here. This is a USB to... 3 or 3.5 millimeter audio jack and it's designed to go with the gopro you can get them for about nine dollars and in the past i would say don't ever record audio in your gopro it's crap the gopro (laughs) does a horrible job but with the version 4 of the gopro out the audio quality in this thing is actually very very decent Um, In fact, if you watch that video on the battery charger, I used this simple $25 lav mic from JV or JC and this adapter plugged directly into the Hero 4 to record that video. And the audio sounds very acceptable to excellent. Um, This is really cheap. This is a great way to get good audio out of your GoPro. And I know with all the advances to GoPros where you can attach lenses and do all kinds of other stuff, you can add the rib cage and, and put on uh, C mount lenses or what have you. You can actually get away with quite a bit with this. And with this adapter, you can also plug in XLR audio via something like a Juice Link or a Beach Tech. Now, I'm not saying you want to make your attachments to your GoPro three times bigger than the GoPro's physical size <laughs> itself, but that is kind of cool. Rigging. Exactly. Back, <laughs> to back to rigging, <laughs> but if you know, especially for a lot of people, do product videos and stuff like that, where they're not designed to be specifically professional as far as going to a corporation or what have you, but they want to like release something on YouTube all the time, and they want to you know generate content on uh, unboxing or you know haul videos or any of that sort of thing. You probably already have a GoPro. Chances are you got one for Christmas or something like that. This cable is cheap. You plug it in and. You can get a lot better audio out of your GoPro than just trying to talk close to the mic that's built into the unit itself. So definitely <laughs> check a look at these cables. Um, the GoPro Hero 4, and I'll probably have a video out on this in a, a month or so. Uh the audio into the GoPro Hero 4 versus the 3 is night and day. It's phenomenally better on the four. So that is <laughs> a very pleasant surprise. I hadn't actually had time to test it because I usually just throw my GoPro in for that sort of thing, but I was like, man. Maybe I'll just shoot this in 4K on the GoPro and, you know, you can have this like on a little arm and above your stuff and it worked perfectly and it it sounded good and that lav mic, that's like a $30 lav mic, $25 lav mic plugged into this. Also, I will have the testing done probably tonight for <laughs> the Aspen mic versus this lav that I just held up because that lav here looks very, very similar to the Aspen. I mean, mm-hmm. the specs are almost identical, so... Once I get those up, I'll have those posted. Uh, Devin, where can people find you?
1: Uh, Impulsenetworks.tv. Right now, the site's actually uh, down for maintenance, removing servers. But uh, by the time this podcast goes out uh, later tonight, it should hopefully be back up and running. Uh, And hopefully, too, I'll be having a review or two posted on there. And, guys, you can find me over
0: at DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes under DSLR Film Noob and on SoundCloud as well as any other place that podcasts are distributed. And thanks as always for watching. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLRfilmnoob.com. That's not what it's called. It's called the podcast. <laughs> Boy, I botched that. <laughs>